So as we continue in our, uh, our chronological journey of Jesus' life and, and ministry, um, a couple weeks ago, we, we had a hiccup last week where I was in quarantine, and so this sermon, this was supposed to be last week, and last week's sermon was supposed to be this week, so we're kind of out of order, but Jesus can work out all the details in all of our hearts, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but three weeks ago, we were talking about the baptism of Jesus and how that is so intricately uh, woven to what we're going to talk about today, where Jesus is being tested and tempted in the, in the desert for, for 40 days and 40 nights by the devil. But first, let's go back and just take a real quick sneak peek at what happened when John was baptizing uh, believers first. And he was saying, hey, I want you to come. And what this is is a symbol that you will believe that the Messiah is coming. So John was baptizing believers. And it was this this baptism of repentance and belief. And then Jesus shows up and, and Jesus says, I want you to baptize me. And so John was a little bit hesitant there, but Jesus spoke, talked him into it. And so then we see Jesus being baptized. And Jesus' baptism was a little bit different than, than ours, right? He did not need to be baptized for repentance of sin. And he was already filled with the Holy Spirit. And John was hesitant to do all of this baptizing of Jesus. But Jesus said, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. But Jesus does identify with, with us in our humanity in his baptism at the same time. Right from the start. He did so so that he could bear our sins on the cross. And as a result, we are able to experience the same thing and the same connection that Jesus talks about as being one that's filled with the Spirit. That we too get a step in Spirit. Step in line with the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 says that we will be in step with the Spirit. And so John then, as we look through the, the, the order there, John then says that um, he was going to baptize with, with water, but Jesus would come and he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Matthew 3.11 there. And the Holy Spirit is like a refining fire, which means that it's going to come and it's going to bring power because of the refining piece of how it hardens and strengthens. And at the same time, it's going to purify and make us whole and cleanse us. It's also going to place something deep in our hearts that's going to draw us to a place of when we have sin and we recognize that sin that we might have a conviction. So the, the, the refining of the fire is going to bring us to a conviction, conviction of our sins in our life. And then Jesus was baptized and he came out of the water and it says that the skies opened up and like a dove it descended down on him and like it, it represented peace. Peace of the Holy Spirit that, that's also brought to our lives through being in this relationship with Jesus. So we too are filled with his peace. One of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5.22 uh, is that there's peace in our lives, that we're filled with that, that we, have, that we, pr- pr- uh, that we would produce that in our lives. I like uh, the story at the end of the death, burial, resurrection where Jesus goes into the upper room with his disciples and the door's locked and they're all there and they're afraid. And Jesus walks in and what does he say? He says, peace be with you. He's offering that peace to them, but he's also saying, hey, I'm the embodiment of peace. And I'm here and I'm in the room with you. Peace be with you. And then we see uh, a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, Matthew 3, 17. Jesus is the son of God in this very unique way. The Holy Spirit 
assures all of us that through what Jesus has done for us, that we too will be adopted sons and daughters. We receive the spirit of adoption. We get to cry out with Jesus, Abba, Father. And that's, uh, and we see that the Holy Spirit, uh, himself, himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, 15. And then God says, this is whom I love. And the Apostle Paul writes that God's love for us is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5. I like the way that John Piper talks about why God chose to love us. He says that God chose to love us. God chose, God's love uh, for us is because He chose to do so. It's not because we deserve it or we required it or we demand it. God loves us because He chose to love us. And then one day, as we serve our Father, then we too hope to hear those words within whom I am well pleased. And so we see this picture of baptism and what happens all in that little, that little pericope there where we see the refining fire, the peace, the adoptedness, the love that's poured out and that we too might be well pleased. And so it, this baptism also is for us. Jesus is baptized to set away, to set us onto the right path. It's a blueprint. So praise the Lord that he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us walk in step with the Spirit. His baptism becomes a blueprint for our preparation. So, saying all that, what this is incredibly important as we look at this account today. So we see the four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have the baptism. Now we're stepping into an account today where we see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we see that the temptation of Jesus is here. And so let's look at the transition from the, the baptism to the temptation of Jesus. And Luke 3, he does it in a very unique way. He unpacks the genealogy before he starts talking about the temptation of Jesus. So he goes through this whole temptation from Jesus, reverse engineers, goes all the way back to Adam, and he says, Adam, the son of God. And I think this arrangement, why Luke does this, is to set us up to place our, our minds and our hearts to back, going back to the very beginning. I think is he's stirring our hearts to think about Adam. Adam had this unique relationship with God as the one that was first created by God. But now Jesus even has a greater unique relationship to God, being born of a virgin as the divine son of God. Adam had a unique relationship with humanity, that he was the headship from which all of us have come. But Jesus has an even greater unique relationship with a new humanity, which he has come to create which he created, and he's also come to redeem. Adam was tempted, and he failed, bringing all of us, all of his people, to, into misery. Jesus is about to be tempted in the same way, but he will not fail. And so he will bring all of his people into victory. And so by looking at the genealogy of Jesus, all the way back to Adam, we're seeing, and that, that we're seeing that, that Adam was a son of God, and by inserting this genealogy right before the temptation of Jesus, we're seeing that Jesus is like a new Adam, entering a new battle to redeem a new people. So the magnitude here is, is kind of ramping up based off of, if you think through that lens, Jesus is about to be tempted. And he's going to be tempted in the same way that Adam was tempted in the garden. That's why we see that genealogy going all the way back to Adam, to bring us back to the garden where the first temptation happens. 
And Jesus being the second Adam, it's a, the, the, um, the pressure here, right, is, is great. Adam failed and brought in sin and misery. Jesus is going to go into this, and if Jesus fails, then we're still stuck with the, without a Redeemer, without any reconciliation, without any hope. We're still a broken and desperate people. But if Jesus succeeds here, we have, a, we have the start of the gospel. We have, we have a new hope. We have a redeemed new people. We have a Savior, and what a beautiful and glorious Savior He is. And we get to see also how Jesus prepared and responded to these temptations. First, we see that He was led into battle. He was led into temptation through the Holy Spirit. He was led there. He wasn't sent. He didn't go out of arrogance or pride or boasting to go and prove something. But he went in humility. He went uh, and was led into the wilderness through the Spirit of the living God. I think it's interesting when we think about the, the Trinity and the, 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 the bringing of Jesus as fully God and fully man. And we look at that fully man part. And there's this same constant interaction that Jesus would need with the Holy Spirit as he went and as he walked this earth. It's the same constant interaction that we need with the Holy Spirit as we go and we walk and we are tempted in and out, day in and day out. Jesus was led so that we too will also be led by the Spirit. And so then we see Jesus preparing, right? So he's led into the wilderness and he goes into solitude and he goes into fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It says that he's incredibly hungry. But there is this, and a lot of us can't really afford a 40-day, 40-night solitude uh, or fasting. I don't know if our bodies could actually handle that. There has been a few that has done that. But I think it is speaking to something of removing things of this world and replacing them with a, the complete presence and prayer and solitude with the Lord and being bathed in God's word and prepared as we go into this world. And at every corner, we're going to be tempted. And so as we're tempted, there's two ways that we're going to look at this, uh, the temptations. Our presuppositions of temptation are to be grounded in things of this world, which Jesus is saying, I'm going to fast and move away from and be in solitude uh, away from these things. Or they're going to be grounded in God's word, which as he is praying and as he's in solitude and as he's fasting, he's chewing on the truth. He's allowing that to sustain him and give him strength. Now, I know that in our culture today, we talk about fasting, and we actually went through a fast there at the end of uh, 2021 as we went through the Advent, asking those to fast with us as we prepare for Advent. But in our culture, fasting can kind of sometimes become um, a rabbit's foot, right? We do this incredibly hard thing in expectation that God owes us something, we do this thing where I was like, man, I prayed and I fasted and, I, and my heart was, was that, that God would really do something for me in, in my most desperate time. But then cancer is still a thing. Or that child is still sick or the bills aren't paid. And what happens is that we give ourselves this rite of passage that now we get to be angry with God for not, for not meeting us in the time of our desperate need. Don't get caught into that trick, into that trap, thinking that, that 
being a, having disciplines of Christianity as, as a rabbit's foot or some sort of super, superstition. Now pray that it would be an act of worship and that God would lead you into doing that for the purpose of bringing glory to Him and the purpose of, of that our hearts would realize how desperate we truly are for that constant interaction with God's Word and that constant dialogue with, with Jesus in prayer. Let it be a response to the Spirit leading you and let it be an act of worship. So we see that's why Jesus did this. I mean, you're thinking, why would Jesus need to do this? Well, I think it's because that He wanted to show us and, and that He was enslaved to God alone. There was nothing else that He needed. He only needed the presence of the Father. So first, Timothy 6 says, not to set your hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything. The discipline of fasting is an act of worship. It's a testing of our faith that God will provide and always has provided all of our needs. Will you and I trust Him more and more today? So, 40 days, 40 nights, solitude, fasting. Now, we're led into the first temptation. I think it's very simple. It's very enticing. Satan knows that Jesus is hungry. Satan also knows that Jesus is is powerful. So he combines these two things. And he says, if you are the son of God, right? Now he's like, you got to prove yourself. If you are the son of God, then take these stones here and eat. Take these stones and turn them to a loaf of bread and go ahead and, and eat. If you're the son of God. Jesus is being tempted in his human weaknesses. His stomach is growling like yours and I would growl if we didn't have, you're probably growling right now just talking about a nice hot loaf of bread. It does the same thing. He is fully human in that way. So Jesus, Jesus is being tempted by the devil in that same way. But here's the trick here. We get a, we get a, a in Mark's account, we get to see a little bit of, of insight on Satan's playbook. Satan's saying, Jesus, if you want to eat, you can eat it if you want. Do you, do you remember that? Like Luke gives us the, the plague all the way back to, to Genesis, Adam in the garden. And here we see the same thing. You can eat this if you want. And Mark gives us that same insight. He has this unique uh, detail in Mark's account. It's a pretty short. It's the shortest of the accounts. It's, only, it's more like a, 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 a summary of it. But in the, his unique short summary, he adds a detail that, that Matthew and Luke does not add. He says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Adam in the garden, walking with, naming, overseeing the wild animals. And then this moment of temptation happens by the serpent using food. And he was told that, that God himself told him not to touch. Don't eat of these things. And we hear the serpent come in and he says, you can eat it if you want to. It's your choice. Surely you won't die. And what he does is he twists God's word. And he lies. He says, surely, surely you're not going to die. You can eat this if you want. What's going to happen? What's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to know what your creator knows now. And so they eat of that fruit. 
Jesus being the second Adam was led by his own spirit into the wilderness to face that same temptation. But it's going to be different this time. It's not going to be a lush garden with a cool breeze and waterways and fruits hanging from the vines. Jesus is pulled out into the wilderness, into the hot desert where there is no water. There's no food. There's no vines. There's no greenery. This devastating place. And he's not going to have a full belly. And he's not going to have all these choices, this buffet of fruit that he could choose from. But instead, he's going to be starving and thirsty. He's not going to have a, a companion that he can discuss things with or, or even be tempted with. But, but the Spirit led him alone into the desert, into solitude. To be tempted by the same things that you and I will be tempted by. Jesus went to the desert to undo what the first Adam did in the garden. He went to establish a new trajectory for man to rely on. Establishing a new reality that Jesus would do what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus was led by the Spirit. And he's able to look into the, the eyes of the tempter. And he's able to command God's authority by using his word. And he still doesn't sin. So where Adam in the garden, while he was with the wild animals, did not obey or trust God's word, which God directly spoke to him earlier, we see Jesus respond to Satan by using God's word, which is engraved in his heart. And he says to Satan, Deuteronomy 8, and he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your father know that he might make you known that he may that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by the every word that comes from the mouth of the lord god's word was satisfying enough for jesus he did not need to prove himself by providing for himself he lived on God's word alone. And so then we see directly into the next and the second temptation in Matthew 4, 8. In Matthew, it's the third temptation. In Luke, it's the second temptation. It's the same temptation. It's a little bit different of order here. And it's the, and it's the temptation of power. Now, Satan could give Jesus these things of this world immediately and give those things to him right here and right now. And I think... Man, food and land, that's all it would take? Surely our Savior is a little deeper than that. But then I think about us and how we are so easily weakened and manipulated by power and provision. How we're so quick to turn and like, man, if something can provide for us, if I can have a little bit more power, we might lay ourselves down for something. But we see Jesus here, and uh, let me read this part, part to you. It says in verse 8, The devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I think it's unique here because Satan is, is ready to give Jesus everything. He does not want Jesus to suffer. Land, food, protection, all of this is a trade-off 
if you will bow down and worship me, if you will be obedient to me right now. Do you see that, that trap? Do you see the trick, the, the two-sidedness there? If Jesus were to, to fall for that trick to prove to Satan that he was the Son of God, then Jesus would have fallen for the same trick Adam did. I'll provide something for you good that's temporary as long as you are obedient to me now. Like that, that idea of like, let's show God we don't need him. Let's show God that you can survive on your own. Let's do this on our, by ourselves. Let's provide for ourselves. Let's make our own way. So how does Jesus respond to that temptation? Again, he uses Deuteronomy. He says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. And then there's this unique detail again in Matthew, in Matthew 3 that we see. It's not found in the other two accounts. It's this unique thing that He says, right before He quotes Deuteronomy 6, He looks at Satan and He says, Go. Be gone. That word in the Greek is hapako. It means to leave, to flee, to go. It's the same word that Jesus uses to Peter when Peter's trying to, t- uh, to correct or rebuke Jesus. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Hapago, Satan. It's a thing that's very powerful when we that are filled with the Holy Spirit are able to recognize temptation and look in the face of temptation. And we too can also say, Hapago. We can also say, go. I'm not interested in that. I have something that's more sustainable than this thing right here. James, it tells us that in, um, in James... Four seven, it says, "Resist the devil, and he will flee." Flee, hapago, same word. Jesus was prepared to serve God by removing the distractions, including Satan. His desire was to worship God in the wilderness, not to bow down to a snake. And so he uses that God's word again. He, him, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And then we see the third. Temptation in Luke. It's the second Matthew. It's the third, and it's this test, this uh, the temptation of protection. Satan is tempting Jesus to show him how his father has promised to protect him by using the angels to make sure that Jesus will never get hurt. What Satan is using, he's using Psalm ninety, and he's twisting the words. He's taking it out of context. He's misusing Scripture to try to trick Jesus. And again, the last thing that Satan wants is Jesus to suffer. Why? Because if Jesus suffers, that means that he's come to rescue his creation, to restore all things back, that there's going to have to be a fight, a battle. And that's going to happen through a suffering servant. So Satan doesn't want Jesus to suffer. He wants to make it real cozy, real comfortable. Protection, power, provision. And so how does Jesus respond to him? He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I don't know if like Jesus had been meditating for 40 days on Deuteronomy. But man, it was right there every time. Temptation, Deuteronomy. He was just on, on the front of his lobe in his mouth. He was ready to speak truth. Where Satan was twisting God's word. 
Jesus was correcting him and using God's word to battle the temptation over and over again. And it's because his identity was in God was so incredibly firm. He found his identity in God, not in provision, not in power, not in protection. What God was offering him actively right then was more than Satan could ever offer Jesus right in the here and now. And so in Luke 4, we see Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil had ended every temptation, and he departed from him until an opportune time. Again, this unique this unique phrase that's only found in Luke. Opportune time, meaning, what can we take away from that, that phrase? I think two things, at least. One, is that the devil's not done. Right? He's still out there, trying to still kill and destroy those that are following the way of Jesus. It tells us that we, too, need to be prepared for those temptations that are around every corner. And we are easy targets, y'all. We're tempted by everything, right? Family, job, friends, insecurity, anger, pride, money. Man, it goes on and on. We are, we are weak. And Satan's going to attack us at our weakest points. And so we have to be prepared like Jesus was prepared for these attacks. Satan's always going to play to our, weak, our weaknesses. And we're all weak. Especially when we think there's something in this world that the world can provide for us. It becomes very enticing. Land. Right? And, and, and food. So how do we prepare for that? And I think it's in the second takeaway from, from that, little, that little phrase. It says that Satan departed. Satan, hapago, he left. Because he knew he was not getting anywhere with Jesus. Jesus continues to rightly use God's word to defend the attack of the enemy over and over again. Jesus prepared, was prepared because he was, he was clothed in righteousness. He thought through the lens of scripture. He didn't rely only on his feelings. Like, I feel like I should go in this, this, this direction. Or, I, man, my, my belly's really saying, I could, I should, I, yeah, I could turn that, that stone into bread and eat, and nobody's going to know except for me and this devil. He didn't go off his feelings. He went off of God's word alone because he had a bigger picture of what was happening. A picture of the kingdom of God, not a temporary kingdom that afforded to us by the devil. But a larger eternal kingdom was in the front of Jesus' mind. So as Satan would tempt him with provision, power, and protection, Jesus was showing Satan none of these things can deliver what the Father is delivering currently, actively, right now. And this should show us the same thing. There is a promise that God is going to provide for us. And that when we bathe and we're bathed in that righteousness, we use God's word as our sword, as our protection. Then as we're led, we're prepared. And so Jesus does not defeat Satan in the sense that putting an end to the penalty of sin or conquering death or even crushing the serpent's head right now. No, what he is preparing is that taste of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's preparing us to battle the same way. He's teaching us, hey, that when you go and you want to make a decision, let it be kingdom-minded. And the only way you're going to make a kingdom-minded decision is that you're going to find solitude and fasting and, and consuming of God's word. 
Because at every temptation, if you're not looking at it through the lens of the gospel, then you are always going to fall into your fleshly instincts. Just like Adam. We have to believe God's word so that we can turn from temptations and run towards the Father. And if we're full of the spirit of the living God when battling temptation, there will be no room to be satisfied by anything else. I promise. Nothing will satisfy us. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we see is that Jesus is led into temptation. Satan tempts Jesus, and Jesus remains steadfast and focused on God's word. Jesus always responds to the temptation by using Scripture. And therefore, he went into the wilderness to undo what Adam did in the first garden. He went to the wilderness to show us that we too can survive by consuming God's word alone. And he's directing us as his disciples to do the same thing. And as the gospel grows and as we continue through this journey of the gospel, we're going to see it. This is the foundation. God's word is what's going to lead all the way through the gospel. And that's what we have today. And that's why it's called the good news. Let's pray. God, thank you for this beautiful truth. Thank you how you've used the whole of Scripture, the meta-narrative from beginning to the end, to draw us to, to focus and be central on you, our King, our Savior, our only hope. Thank you for doing what we could never do for ourselves. As we prepare right now even to consume uh, the Lord's uh, Supper, God, that you would remind our hearts of how desperate we are how easily we're manipulated and how, how strong and how powerful your word is to lead us from temptation and to glorify you in our lives. Help us, Lord. Thank you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.